Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Matt Osman on his new novel, The Ghost Theatre. Matt Osman is bassist and founder member of iconic British rock band Suede and a composer of music for TV and films. He also worked as a culture journalist during the noughties, writing about art and travel for papers, magazines and online. Matt's the author of a debut novel, The Ruins, and is co-author with Stephen Elcock of England on Fire. And today we're going to be talking about Matt's latest book, which is The Ghost Theatre. Matt, welcome to Little Atoms. Lovely to be here, Neil. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe the novel. It's a story of, of two child actors in Elizabethan London, one called Nunsuch, who was kidnapped as a child to perform on the stage, uh, singing and acting for London's Rich, something which, which actually happened quite regularly. This, it wasn't something that I made up at all. And the other one is a, a messenger girl called Shay who is kind of our viewpoint of the story. And the two of them come together and they form with their friends a kind of guerrilla theatre troupe called the Ghost Theatre. They perform these kind of hallucinatory, truth-telling tales, tales of real London life in London's darker corners, and they build up a following among you know, London's dispossessed, so the apprentices and the working class. And it's a story a little bit about about the power of performance and about um, how uh, pretending to be something and acting as something can have a real power to itself. They form this troupe and they ferment rebellion, not necessarily deliberately. And it brings London and England itself to a kind of fiery head. And I can't really tell you what happens exactly at the end because that would spoil it. Tell us something more about the setting then, because it's Elizabethan London or Elizabethan Britain, mm-hmm. um, but it's like slightly heightened. It would be a bit too far to say sort of steampunky, but it's definitely like a, a your own version of Elizabethan England. So tell us something more about the setting. 
Well, I try to kind of fill in gaps. One of the things I'm always fascinated in is the way that history is written by the victors. And to find out about kind of working class life in London at those times was quite hard. You have to kind of like dredge it from from weird sources and kind of asides in other books and and lots of stuff from the plays of of the era. So what I did was I tried to write in in the spaces. You know, I knew that I'd seen a, a documentary about how children were kidnapped to perform on stage. And it fascinated me. I've, I've always been drawn to, to the idea of performers and, and how they kind of navigate their lives. I was just instantly intrigued by, by these actors because they were simultaneously incredibly famous. This is a period at which, you know, theatre is, is absolutely booming. It's what Londoners do. They were as famous as you could be without being royalty. But at the same time, they were completely powerless and statusless. Um, this is a time at which, you know, actors were basically on a level with whores and beggars. They weren't seen as any more than that. And that that kind of dichotomy and that kind of oddity, it really appealed to me. I often look back, I think as, as often people do, and you think to yourself, who would I have been in these earlier times? You know, who would I have been in World War II? Who would I have been in Elizabethan Britain? And the idea that there were these performers, these young performers, who went through many of the things that young performers still go through now, you know, kind of like child actors and stuff like that, child stars. It just fascinated me. So there's lots of stuff there that's, that's very, very realistic. You know, the, the actors themselves from the Blackfriars Theatre are all real. Uh, the theatre owner, Evans, is real and, and drawn from kind of uh, stories about him during the day. All the places they visit in Southwark are real. Sackerson, the performing bear, is real and turns up in Shakespeare. They're all things on the very edges of history. And where I found there was no story about them, I just made it up for myself. There's a brilliant quote I, that I always love from, from Ian Fleming, of all people who said, in my books, I write about things that are very improbable, but not impossible. And that's what I hope I've done with Elizabethan London. The things that happen in it are very, very improbable, but not impossible. They may, might just have never, ever got written down. Well, I want to talk about an example of one of those things there, because Evans, you just mentioned, who is the theatre owner, we will come back to him a bit more about who he is. Um, but he owns this extremely improbable house that is used as a sort of set piece <laughs> in the yes. book where Shay meets Queen Elizabeth for a reading. Um, tell us about this house and where that comes from. Well, it comes, again, from a, a total aside in a book. I can't remember the title of it on, on Elizabethan theatre. And in the midst of all of it, there's, a, there's just this, this one line which said, Evans owned the first glass house in London. I probably expanded a little bit on it. It's quite possible they were talking about what we would now think of as a greenhouse. But at the same time, I spent a bit of time researching Venetian glass and stuff like that. And the house is just about possible if he had, um, if he had good contacts in Venice at the time. Incredible things were being done at the time with kind of etched glass. So again, it's it's at the very improbable side of not impossible. Let's spend some more time talking about him then and, and the, the real Blackfriars boys. So like you mentioned that they were like people who were kidnapped off the street to work in the troop. 
and working for a theatre troupe, as it turns out, is, is for like a, a young kid snatched from the street is not that bad compared to a lot of things that well, might have happened to them. Although perhaps we can uh, we can we can see where that goes. Well, y- yes and no. Because, there is another I mean, side of it. There is there is another side to their to the, the private masks, which is where unspeakable totally. things are done to them by gentlemen. Um, yes, which is a different side to it. You know, however, the 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 fate of a of an orphan child on the streets of London could you know could be pretty could be pretty short. So in in some respects, it doesn't look that bad. But we're not even necessarily talking about you know just random poor children or orphans they were they were just kidnapping anybody really it seems like, well, how, yes. did they, how did they do that uh, and basically kids who could sing and kids who were pretty i mean that's that's the way it worked there's a fascinating documentary that got shown on channel five a little while back by um catherine rundell who who wrote that incredible book on John Donne last year? Yeah, of course. She, she was on the show earlier earlier this yes. year. Uh, the Golden Mole, absolutely incredible, beautiful book. Yeah, I mean she's she's amazing. She did a documentary on a famous court case in 1601 where a child had been snatched, very high born, and his gentleman father took Evans and one of the other owners to court to try and get his child back. So it wasn't just street kids. You know, these these were the sons of the aristocracy that were being taken as well, because the demand for performers, not just for the Blackfriars, which was a kind of high-end theatre that did cater to London's rich, but also for the Queen, and for you know the, when the when the court went around Britain, they would take these masks with them. Incredible production values, you know. I mean, like a West End spectacle. They were highly prized these performers. And it's difficult to say exactly how they were treated. But this is an age in which there is no real childhood. You know, child labor is is completely accepted. And as I said, actors were seen as little better than prostitutes. They really were the lowest of the low. So I think it could have been quite a horrific life. It wasn't the life of a modern actor in any way. But of course, somebody's making money out of this if it's not the actors. Oh, and, of course. And again, this is this is Evans, who's obviously an extremely um, successful entrepreneur. And um, obviously, you know, people may be familiar with some other playwrights of the Elizabethan times, a couple of which get mentioned in the book. But there's a distinction here between like the adult theatre and child theatres. So, what is the difference? They were quite strange. The child theatres. There's a line in the beginning of, I think, Hamlet where, where Shakespeare complains about them. They were an absolute sensation for about a decade and a half. And one of the things I think that was so appealing about them to people was this kind of combination of, of innocence and, and sin. The plays that they were made to put on were frequently very satirical, often quite sexual, often quite political. And there was a constant battle going back and forth between theatre-goers and the more puritanical parts of London society over whether this was kind of prurient content. And I think if we, were to, if we were to look at it now, it was seen as being kind of a very down market and, you know, almost pornographic in its qualities. But you have to remember, this is at the very beginnings of, of what we think of as, as modern theatre. And it was still sensational at this point. You know, it was still this 
boom industry. It was it was almost as if the internet had come along. Suddenly there was this mass media thing. And like most art forms, like music, like photography, like visual art, it starts off as commerce and ends up as art. And this is right back when it was still still commerce. And obviously this is a time when, and we see this through both Shea and Nonsuch at the theatre, when gender roles within the theatrical world, if not necessarily the world at large, were, were much more fluid. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's that strange thing that only boys could appear on stage. You know, Shea has, has to disguise herself even, even to be in the building. And this is also, I guess, some of the, the sexual frisson of the children's companies that they're often playing female roles and they're often playing female roles that are explicitly sexual in, in Elizabethan England, that the Cleopatras and Salomes and things like that. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Matt Osman and we're talking about his novel, The Ghost Theatre. And Matt, let's talk about Shay for a bit. And she is part of a religion or a cult called the Avis Schooltons. Tell us who they are and where that comes from. They are a cult of bird worshippers and they come from, I guess, the recesses of my imagination. They come from a conversation I had a couple of years before I wrote this book. And it was just one of those throwaway lines. I was talking to someone and I was saying, why are there no societies that, that worship birds? It seems, you know, that there are societies that worship all kinds of strange things and strange animals, but no birds. And that seems so odd to me because they seem so eminently worshipable. They're so strange and heavenly at the same time. And like with lots of my writing, it was writing about them was just an attempt to answer that question. What would it look like if if people did worship birds? What would be, you know, what would be the rituals? What would they find from it? What would be moving about it? What would be difficult about it? I wanted to write about some of the the kind of the sects that kind of spread around Britain at that time. You know, I, I wrote some text for a book called England on Fire, which is about kind of the psychic history of, of British art. And I was interested in in these strange groups that, you know, lived in the British Isles in the in these weird corners, you know, the diggers and the chartists and, you know, the druidical communities that were left and all, all these kind of things. And I wanted to write about them, but I didn't want to write about one of the better known groups because I thought I'd probably get it wrong. But Shay's just one of those characters who kind of sprung fully formed um, without me having to do much about it. It's kind of it's such a pleasure when that happens as a writer that a character just comes to you like that. But I'd been reading a lot about messengers and the way they were the lifebloods of, 
of a London that obviously had no postal service or you know telephones or anything like that. So there was an army again of children who made a living rushing from one part of London to the next, and you know the most fleet of foot being the ones that got paid, almost like uh, bike messengers, you know, in in the eighties and nineties. So she just kind of appeared to me. I, I had her as a messenger. I, I knew I wanted her on the rooftops. I love that idea of, of kind of looking down over London and, you know, the, almost the bird's eye view of London. And I spent a lot of time in lockdown uh, cycling around Windsor Great Park. And at that time, the, the red kites were having a, a field day because there were so few people around. Suddenly, you'd see these huge birds just wheeling around on top of you, and I watched I watched them for hours and hours. And that's you know that's partly where the Falcon Divana comes from, but also part of just the kind of I guess the wonder of birds, the kind of strangeness and the power of them. And I don't know, it it seems a much much less ridiculous religion than most <laughs> to me. Well, not least when one of the things that they use as part of their religious ceremonies is the um, the starling murmurations, which is mm. just, yeah, just a, like an incredible otherworldly side. Yeah, they've always fascinated me, always. You know, I, I will go out of my way to see them. I often spent hours on YouTube <laughs> watching them, just uh, imagining what it's like to be there. And I wanted, I wanted to give her something from which she could try and tell the future you know it's there's a little bit of tarot card reading in the book and i've always been interested in how we use things like tarot cards and uh horoscopes and things like that these things that are obviously there's no real power to them but how we can use them to unlock our own subconscious and other people's and i just wanted to give her something like that that hadn't been done before and then just seeing the kind of patterns in the murmurations made me think oh I, if you know if you had that kind of worship of birds that would seem like a message i think and using the the idea of this sect at this time is obviously you know it's a it's an incredibly um dangerous time to be a, a religious mm. center this is a, a time of like ongoing religious wars for well for centuries mm. but there's another figure in this book another sort of mystical real life figure that we meet in the book that I wanted to talk about that Shay meets on a couple of occasions and that's a that's John D tell us something about him I love writing about John Dee. He turns up in, in the ruins at, at one point. He just he marks the end of an age when magic and science could coexist. It's almost the high watermark of that. You know, he was this character who, at the same time as being learned in, in like astronomy and uh, chemistry and things like that, the growing sciences of the times, he also, you know, communed with angels and uh, thought he could turn turn lead to gold and all these kind of things. And it's one of, I think it's one of the reasons why we come back to the Elizabethan times time and time again, is that sense that you're on the verge of, of the scientific world. You're on the, the verge of the modern world, you know, the, everything post the Enlightenment. But magic is still afoot and it's still part of that. It's still tied up in that and people don't see any differences to it and i'm not I, I don't have any supernatural beliefs whatsoever 
but having said that, I'm a musician and I'm a writer, so that's that's magic for me. It's it's kind of inexplicable, and it makes something out of nothing, and it's kind of alchemical. You know, you you make gold from from thin air, and that's that kind of break between science and magic, and music and theatre, and the way they're all tied up in this time. I think there's just something captivating about it. It's it's a world that's almost like our own, but with a, a weird shine to it. And I wanted to say something about the again, without talking too much about where the story goes and and what the effects of the the, the ghost theatre troupe are. I was struck by how how very modern the confections that um, that Nonsuch comes up with that they perform in taverns and in and in other places outside of the normal theatre setting and they move away from telling stories of kings and mm. you know mythical stories into you know telling stories of real life and again i don't to what extent is that does that come from anywhere real or is this a, you know was this your own imagining because it's it's just such a, a really solid idea but it feels like extremely like almost like you know modern theatre translated into the Elizabethan times. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult because one of the things that I always assume is that people don't change that much. When I started to write this book, I wanted to write about kind of like my experiences of, of being in a band and, and the way the, the kind of the shape of being in a band never changes. You know, it's, it's always this Icarus story. It's always this fantastic um, surge at the beginning and then this arrogance and then this hubris and then you always go too far and you're always broken by it and it's such a kind of it's a story that comes time and time and time again um, you know you go back to the 1920s and you see it in, in the birth of film you know in the 1960s you see it with pop stars and stuff like that and in my mind there was always this question has it always been this way and that's what interested me about writing in this time, because I can firmly believe that there would have been people and groups of people who wanted to tell those kind of stories, even in Elizabethan England. I think it's a natural human desire. I think it's a natural artistic desire to make stories and art that's about the people around you and the life that you lead. But what's important to remember is those stories get written out of history. If they did exist, and I hope that they did, we wouldn't know anything about them. But part of the, uh, the shame when I was writing England on Fire and Stephen was showing me these incredible pictures from kind of like Tudor times and Elizabethan times is knowing that if there was working class art of that time, you don't see it. You only see it in kind of like the carvings in cathedrals. You only see it in craftsmanship. You only see it in tapestries and stuff like that. Anything ephemeral is lost forever. And in a sense, I was trying to write what I hope ordinary people were doing and thinking and feeling at the time. I might be incredibly wrong. I might be totally, totally wrong. But again and again, when I was reading about ordinary Londoners in those times, little things would crop up and you would just think, but that's just the same as now. It's just identical. There's a brilliant, brilliant bit in one of the histories of I think it might be in that 1599 book on Shakespeare, where someone is complaining that the monasteries that King Henry VIII had taken back 
have all been sold to property developers and are now being turned into these tiny these tiny rooms and they're using foreign laborers to do it and it, it was so a london pub conversation from 2020 that there was something incredibly cheering about this that these strange little circles get played out over and over again throughout history well i was going to ask you how being in the band has influenced this particular story because it's you know it's about um it's about performers and not least because on my copy of the uh, my proof copy of the book here there's a little tagline on the front which says on the streets they were nothing on the stage they were kings which in my mind just sounded like a suede lyric Um, (laughs) but um you've answered that so um let's just talk about then how i guess how you've been able to combine both touring and writing. I mean, obviously, you just mentioned also that this book was probably, you know, predominantly written during the pandemic. But in general, how does that tend to work for you? It's easier than you might think. You know, people always say to me, you know, ah, how do you manage to do, how do you have the time for both things? But touring is, I mean, it's, you work for like an hour and a half a day. And the rest of the day, it's just hanging around, you know, in hotels, in vans, on planes. I mean, there's never been a better time to write, really. I have the advantage of of a bass player's schedule, which means that there's lots and lots of time left over for writing. And I think there's something, there's also something really pleasurable about it for me, because I find writing a, a pretty lonely business. And it can, you know, you can just find yourself lost in the weeds a little bit with it. Very easy to spend a day working on something, not speaking to another human being. And then at the end of the day, just deciding, actually, it's not very good. I love having something that's really collaborative and social and demonstrative and and physical to do the rest of the time. They work really, really well together for me. So to finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, right. This is the the first performance that Shay watches. Conversations were snuffed out with the candles, and there was a weight to the darkness then, like the room had filled with oil. A wedge of scenery was wheeled onto stage before eyes got used to the dark. There was a last delicious moment of calm before Alouette hit the lamp in front of them. There it was, the prow of a ship, cresting and burrowing into waves. Aquamarine silk undulated across the floor. It was at once profoundly unrealistic and utterly beguiling. Alouette worked a bellows, laid sideways with its spout angled towards the bow, and she sent up a glimmering spray of water. Shea caught the smell of deep sea with no land in sight. The ship curtsied to meet the waves, and when it rose again, none such was on deck, with his hands on his hips. He was Cleopatra bird-eyed and horse-maned, black silk that captured ripples of sea light and gold at his ankles and wrists, gold that was too plain for jewellery but too rich for shackles. He turned a degree so that the light split his face in two. His first line, according to Shea's script, was The waves know my fate and Caesar's too, but he continued to stare out in silence. There was a reverie to it, the creak of wood and the smell of salt, the candlelight and hushed breaths. Shea tugged at Alouette's hem. Should I? But Alouette shook her head. Our hearts are ships. He didn't say it the way she was used to hearing players talk. Rather, he threw the line to the front row of the audience, 
quietly enough that they had to lean in a little closer. Our hearts are ships, he said again. And when life's weather is fair, we tell ourselves that we are our heart's captains. It is us who steer the course. We set sail for new lands. We explore. He flung his arms wide and turned so that he was almost entirely in darkness. There was the tiniest glint of light from his eyes. Alouette dimmed the lantern until he was little more than a voice and a gleam of gold. But that is an illusion. When true storms come, they pluck the ships of our heart up and toss them this way and that. We are no captains. Instead, we hang on for dear life, clinging to the mask as the winds rage around us. He blew out his cheeks against the squall of the spray. His hair was damp and flustered. Our hearts are ships, he said louder now, as Elouette worked the bellows. And tonight the tempest is here. The storm is upon us and my heart is lost on a killing sea. Shay looked in vain at her script. Not a word of the speech appeared there. None such stood taller, extended a hand and blew. Tiny paper boats, as small as thistledown, streamed from his palm and all over the theatre hands reached up into the light and then, in one moment, Alouette killed the lanterns and the curtain fell. Well, I suppose that was scene one, she said. So I've been talking to Matt Osman. We've been talking about his novel, The Ghost Theatre, which is out in the UK now from Bloomsbury. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thanks for having me on, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store.